welcome to TLF Gems, a podcast about customer experience and insight from TLF Research. I'm Stephen Hampshire. And I'm Greg Roche. In this episode, we'll be discussing a chapter from our book, Customer Satisfaction. This is chapter number five, entitled Exploratory Research. And it follows on from chapter four, not surprisingly. <laughs> you can see we're, we're, we've, we've got some statistical skills in this office at the moment. But chapter number four is about asking the right questions to make sure your survey is based on the lens of the customer, not, not the organisation. So the only way, if customer satisfaction is about doing best what matters most, the questionnaire has to be based on the things that matter most to customers. Therefore, Stephen, the only people who can tell you that are... Customers. Brilliant. So, this is called qualitative you know, research. What we want to do is to talk to some customers about what's important to them. So given that surveys are all about reliability and that sort of stuff, Stephen, do we need to talk to lots of customers or a few customers? Uh, for qualitative research, we need to talk to relatively few customers. In fact, I've underlined a sentence from the chapter, which I think, I think gets to it quite well. So it says, qualitative research involves getting a lot of information from a small number of customers. Um, I sometimes say it's about depth rather than breadth. It's about really getting to understand how, how each individual sees the world, how they think and feel, um, and how they, they see their relationship with, with their supplier. Yeah, I, with clients, I sometimes explain to them, because they're trying to proportion it out, they're trying to do mm. the quantitative proportions and quotering, and saying, it doesn't matter. The main survey will make sure that's right. This is about depth. Mm. And... Therefore, some of the best people for doing this are, you know, gurus or experts or known complainers who have a lot to talk about. Because it doesn't matter whether these people are happy or sad. The main survey will judge whether everyone is happy or sad. These people will have a lot to talk about in turn and let you understand how a customer sees the world. Yeah. Main survey will judge. Yeah, so you, negatively. you're not looking for, for kind of statistical reliability and, and, and representation. What you're looking for is coverage. You want to get a wide spread of opinion. So, you know, if you have, let's say you have 10 depth interviews you can allocate. Once you've spoken to three, for want of a better word, average normal customers, yeah. you don't want to speak to any more normal customers. You want to find the unusual customers. So that might be you know, uh, the customer who's dealt with you for 20 years and your godfather to their children and they know you better than any other customer. Or it might be a brand new customer. Or it might be someone who's just made a complaint. Or it might be someone who's actually, you know, reluctantly just come over from your competitors. Uh, the more you can push and the en edges of the envelope of who we're speaking to, the better. Yeah, because this whole process, if we're trying to come up with customer requirements, things that matter to customers. If this is done well, whether it's depth interviews or focus groups, which I'll we'll talk about in a minute, you're probably looking at somewhere between, what would you say, 70 or 80? I once got over 100 with a series of focus groups in Ireland requirements, but 50, 60, 70 requirements coming out is important if you... Max, I would have thought. I mean, again, it, it varies depending what are you are you looking at a specific journey, a specific sort of uh, set of events, and you know, a specific customer experience, or are you looking at the whole relationship piece? Yeah. 
Um, so that does have an impact on how many requirements could go in there. And again, B2B versus B2C does tend to vary. But yeah, absolute max, the number of the number of things you're going to be considering as potential, should this go on the questionnaire or not. If, if that's any more than 50, then you've got you've got a problem, I think. Yeah, no, I'm thinking more in the exploratory. I think when we get down to the questionnaire, we're probably down to 15 yeah, yeah. maximum. But, but even yeah. in the exploratory stage, you, you know, you wouldn't... It, I think it's always a... You, you always reach a stage in exploratory where you're desperately trying to stretch this list and you can see customers sort of hunting around going, oh, I guess it's nice when they have matching shoes or, and, and they're really struggling to find anything. How many things are important about your rep? You know, availability, professionalism, account management, keeping promises. They come back to me, they know the product. You know, you, you can end up, mm. you know, and whilst as researchers we might all think they are different, I'm not sure the customer really sees a lot of difference in, no. you know, in, 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 those, in those requirements they have. I think one of the things that also comes up, so as I say there's fundamentally depth interviews and, 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 and focus groups would, would be the two main ones. But a question that I find I often have to work through with clients is who is the customer? And that's in, that's in two different scenarios. Um, in one scenario, they're talking definitely about the decision-making unit. You know, in the B two B environment, there's gatekeepers, mm-hmm. there's um, various people, procurement. You know, who who are you trying to understand what's important to? Because what what's important to the buyer is probably different to what's what's important to the general management manager or, or, or you know or, or the day to day. The day to day sort of contact. You know, we are trying to represent a, as much of a sort of spectrum of customer opinion as we can, uh, as we've already said. And one, you know, one perspective of that is what job titles, you know, or job roles are we looking at? So is it someone in procurement, someone with perhaps a technical contact, perhaps someone who actually uses your product? Um, and, and, you know, we often end up looking in general terms at a sort of at three things, essentially. You have a kind of decision maker level, you have an influencer level, so someone who has a direct and significant influence on, on which supplier uh, that client goes with and then a user so that you know those three levels probably you know it's not all one job role within each of those categories but those are the three sort of levels we might be interested in and, and, and often they may end up with different questionnaires um, not always but but it's certainly something you should be open to at the qualitative stage and you'd certainly involve all those in the qualitative stage in different ways yes and I think it, a bit like, um, and th- this is, but this, by the way, is all sort of for business-to-business research. So we'll, we'll come on to more of the B two C stuff later on. But yeah, it, it, for most B two B research, you find that a sort of gold, silver, bronze approach works quite well. Where some clients are worth a lot more than others, frankly, and the sort of Pareto thing goes on, and some individuals within each company are. Um, have more impact on the decision of whether to go with you or to whether to go with a competitor than others. So if you imagine kind of, you know, three rows and three columns to have sort of top client, senior decision maker, okay, well, that, that person, that person's opinion is vital to understand, you know, very small client, relatively low impact yeah. on the decision. Well, okay, that person, yeah, they matter as a customer, but but then they matter nowhere near as much. So there's sort of nine cells of potential importance there. Yeah, absolutely. Though. I- the decision-making unit isn't just, I mean, it lends itself much more to B2B, but it, it is also B2C. If I think back to the last time we bought a family car, 
um, and myself and my wife and my two little children were going around um, showrooms. There was certainly one garage where the salesman really got the decision-making unit wrong because <laughs> he really just focused on me. Um, he totally ignored uh, my wife sitting in the car playing music on the stereo rather loud, children climbing over seats and things like that, and he was very focused on me. Now, he might have been right in terms of the bank account where the money was going to come from to pay for that transaction, but he really got the decision-making unit very, very wrong in, you know, in, in, in that scenario. Yeah, and I think the big thing to say there is there is actually a, you know, a lesson to take out of that, which is the people who are on your database may not be the right people. That's a really good uh, point. Often that they're not. That's a really, really good point. Um, how do you address that? Well, one technique that's probably worth mentioning, just in, in sort of practical terms, is something called snowball sampling, which is a sort of fancy research term for asking customers who else you should talk to. So if, you know, if Greg is the person on the invoice, I'll go and interview Greg, and at the end of the interview, Greg, that's been really interesting. Is there anyone else who, whose opinion I need to know? Yeah, and you do see that quite a lot on some of the financial services ones where the, the you know, the product may be with a certain person, but it's a joint product or it's mm. a family product or the the, per, the, the decision-making unit isn't the name of the person who you've got on your, yeah. you know, on, on, on your database. It's about who the customer is that you sometimes get asked in the B2B market, particularly if there's um, a part of a process, perhaps if it's going through brokers or there's an end customer there, who really is the customer? Is it my next step in the chain? Is it the step after that? Or is it the person who ultimately consumes mm. my, my product? Because all of those would have different views and can we influence one step, two step or three steps yeah. down, um, down the process? So in principle, I think you should, you should want to include all of those. Again, in practice, you can get into slightly tricky situations where your immediate customer doesn't want you going to talk to their customers. Um, so there can be issues around sort of physically accessing them, but, but also about treading on toes. So in principle, yes, in, in practice, yeah. it can be tricky. Yeah. I tend to pull it back into the practical world of who's paying you, where do you get your money from? Mm. And if it's the next step, Yes, you want to know further down the road, of course you do, but you really want to make the next person in the step really like you and want to spend more money with you, and if you can make them happy, that probably opens the door to go further steps down, down, down the road, and that can save an awful lot of navel-gazing conversations um, from that point of view. Yeah. So we've probably talked a little bit there in terms of, of we're focusing on B2B, where you typically go and do a depth interview, either face-to-face -face over the telephone, um, really try and ask lots of open questions, really try and get people to under to explain what's important um, to them as a customer. Um, there's various techniques we talk about in the, you know, in the book, whether that's forced trade-off or get them to sort of look at their supplier assessment criteria is usually a pretty good way of judging what, what you know what, what what's important. Any sort of golden tips or key learnings you think about for depth interviews face-to-face? -face? I mean, the main thing is, is just remember it's, it's a, I think interview's the wrong word in some respects. It, it's not a script, it's, it's a discussion. Yeah. And I think 
there is an art to to asking open questions well. Uh, and my my sort of top tip on asking open questions is never use the word why, um, because why sounds like an open question but isn't. Why did you say that? <laughs> nice. Um, so. So why encourages people to give you a short justification? So, you know, why are you not happy about whatever is because they're always late. Whereas tell me about or just, you know, explain that a little bit gets people to open up and they understand you want a longer explanation. So, you know, can you tell me a little bit about how you feel about our delivery performance? Well, so it's, it's mostly all right, but one thing that really frustrates me is that when things on paper they're on time, but you put it in the wrong place and, and you, you get more of a story and you, you get more of an understanding of the impact on the customer and why it matters to them. I think that word, the impact, if you start getting people to explain the impact it has on them, I think you get a much truer understanding of what it is they want. Mm. You know, I, I, you know I, we, we did some work for a, a you know, pharmaceutical um, company that basically supplied pills and you know and things like that you know and how much does product quality matter in that arena <laughs> if it's wrong people die <laughs> you know so it, it, it's understanding the impact of a defective product is is different in different markets yeah. and and yeah I think that impact and and it's just having the right open questions to really get them to articulate what is the need they're mm -hmm. trying to fulfill, perhaps not the product or service yeah. they're, they're receiving. Absolutely, and I think there's a couple of things that can help with that. I think three extra things, extra little tips to help with that. Um, I'll probably forget one of them as I'm going, but three to begin with. One is try and understand their process in as much detail as you can. Something that, that happens with surprising frequency is that you find out ways that customers are working that are not the efficient and best way to be working. So, you know, a lot of their frustrations are, are actually because they don't know any better. Yeah. You know, they, they're, they're creating a bad situation for themselves by not doing things, you know, the way you imagine that they're doing them. So if, if you know, you can go in and do an interview and figure that out, actually, even from the qualitative stage, you can get immediate quick wins. So customers don't realise that we've got this option for them if only they knew about it. Yeah. Um, so that's the you know, first thing, you don't even have to change anything, you just have to realise that customers don't get it. I think the second thing is w when you're doing depth interviews, you're often going out into the world, you, you know, you go to the, where the customer is, you're in their environment, you're looking around you. That's data, so that, that sort of observation, where are the catalogues, how are they using them, where are the post-it notes tucked into the pages, who, who else's catalogues are there, that's all data you can, you can add into the pot to analyse. I'm try, definitely not trying to make you forget the third one. But in terms of dwelling on that second one, you get so much information just by being in the reception area. You start seeing mm -hmm. what things are on their wall or on the screen. So it sort of makes you think that stuff matters. Is it yeah. lost time accidents? Is it customer charters? Is it um, awards for winning design? And all, you know, it just starts giving you an understanding of the culture in the organization. And I think then actually going, you know, whether it's a physical product or a service, but going in and seeing who uses it, where they use it, how they use it, is just absolutely fantastic because you, you see the environment it's in, whether it's office or factory, and the type of person who's using it and what they're using it for. And suddenly some things that would seem, it, 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 it makes things very obvious, which you might not assume are, mm. you know, are, 
obvious you know without seeing that environment it's just a much better way of gathering much more qualitative information mm. much better absolutely have you gotten the third no one? i haven't i'm just about held on to it so, so yeah the, the the third thing i think is in qualitative work in general i think bad qualitative research is reciting what customers told you what they said um, so if you look at a qualitative report and it's just a load of quotes from customers nothing wrong with that per se but that's not qualitative research that's piling up some quotes from customers yeah qualitative research is about looking for the meaning that's yeah. underneath what customers say so in order to do that some of it is is practice frankly because I'm getting getting used to looking for that layer below some of it is doing the interviewing well so figuring out where there's something to dig into and some of it is having appropriate kind of mental models so that you understand you know the, some of the psychology and the behavioral economics and, and, and what Wendy Gordon in, in a really good book calls mind frames so ways of thinking about what people mean when they say things and why they're saying those things and um, so it's there's too much there to go into it into massive detail, but I think that principle of you're always looking for what's underneath yeah. what customers are saying uh, is, a, is a layer below what they just say. And definitely done better by people who are really good um, with high emotional intelligence who can really get to the, this isn't what was said, this is what was meant. Mm. Absolutely. And if that's depth interviews, typically B2B, not totally B2B, those same rules would apply very much in focus groups. Yeah, it, it, they, they absolutely do. Yeah, I mean, I think business to consumer research is in some ways easier in, in that you tend to have one individual as the customer, although don't forget about, you know, your wife in the car and yeah. family units and so on. But, but broadly speaking, it, it tends to be a bit easier. And yeah, the, the principles of the way you ask open questions, the fact that you're looking for, you know, not just what's said, but how it's said, the meaning that sits behind it, that's mm. all absolutely um, sort of transferable, yeah. So usually in a series of focus groups, you would do more, um, you'd have more people involved. More people, yeah. Yeah. So in terms of the depth versus breadth, I think the point to make is whilst it's more people, it's still not quantitative. Mm. It's using the focus group dynamics to spark off each other to get to that depth. Yeah. Yeah, and I think... It does depend what the nature of the product or the service is that we're talking about. I mean, everyone in the, when we start talking about this, everyone goes straight to you know uh, very intimate things that people aren't going to want to discuss in a focus group. But it, it doesn't even necessarily need to be super super private or, or, or secretive. It's just um, sometimes people th feel that anything financial is a little bit too kind of uh, personal to talk about in a focus group. So so it is worth thinking about: is this right for a group situation, or would it be better with a one-on-one -on -one interview? The other sort of reality is that in, you know in your average focus group, they last for about an hour and a half. Yeah. Probably tw a good twenty minutes of that is is kind of mechanics, introductions, Ice finishing, breakers. maybe even more, maybe half an hour. Yeah. So so if you've got ten people in an hour's worth of, of active work, the amount of airtime per person is maximum six minutes. Yeah. Versus forty five or so minutes for a depth interview. So you are talking relatively less depth you just you just have to be yeah yeah but perhaps the processes aren't as complicated in terms of, of you know what you get you certainly get the same number of, of, of requirements um, you know requirements coming out and I think 
whether it's a depth interview or, or a focus group, the structure, I and mean, we're not going to have time to go into it, is very much consistent. You have to have a little bit of ice breaking. Mm. You also really, even though we want to understand what's important to customers, you really need to understand that customers are at first going to tell you what they like and don't mm. like about the organisation. And I always find that really quite interesting because the more you can get them to talk about their experiences, as long as you're mentally, mentally putting it as neutral, it, they're talking about a topic. The salesman really knew his stuff or the salesman didn't know his stuff. Ah, the salesman knowing his stuff is important. The product's really reliable, the product's not reliable. Oh, product reliability is mm. important. And it really does give you a very good prompt list for later on when you're really trying to understand the requirements and the relative you know, importance of those, of those requirements. Yeah, and I think something that... Um, I wanted to bring up in this chapter, and I don't think I've mentioned yet, but I might have done, um, is you know, the other thing that qualitative work gives you, as well as an understanding of what those themes are and, and you know, what people are talking about, what's important, it also gives you an understanding of the language that customers use to talk about Absolutely, it. Absolutely, yeah. Um, yeah. And that's one of the best ways to avoid the whole lens of the organisation trap that we've talked about yeah. in previous episodes. And particularly as good questionnaire design has to be written in customer speak, mm. not organisation speak. And there's often a big difference in them, not just acronyms, but in the phrases that people use yeah. to, de to, to describe things. Absolutely, yeah. Um, in terms of sort of then focus groups, techniques very much the same. You know, lots of open questions. Do you ask why in focus groups? Can I ask you why? I would avoid asking why as, as, as pretty much ever. I think it's, it's a... It's a real trap. Um, I wouldn't asking why once is is a mistake. I think there are usually better ways to do it. If you ask why more than once, it really closes people down, and they start getting almost defensive because it sounds like you're challenging them. Yeah, and they have to justify yeah. a feeling, which is not always you know it's not always easy to do. So I think the other thing to say about focus groups is. In a way, they're a little bit like an internal workshop in that you have this kind of shape, which you've alluded to already, which you, you have a, in textbook terms, people talk about forming, storming, norming, performing, and I think mourning. Uh, I'm a little bit, it's been a while since I've read a textbook, so I forget precisely, but this, so there's a sort of pattern of, you know, coming together, figuring out all the social dynamics before you can do useful work, and then you have to have a little bit of time to close. And I think that's, that's broadly useful, the mistake, I think, is to think that the icebreakers can't do useful work for oh, you. Oh, they can, yeah. Um, so so it's, it's finding, just like a workshop, finding, I think, icebreakers, you know, things that will allow the group to coalesce, but also produce something useful as output. Do you know what my favourite icebreaker is? The Titanic or something? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm putting you down to my level. That, that's really... No, I, I was asking a sensible question. Go on. I love the creative comparison. If you had to describe this organisation as a animal or as a motor car, what car is it? And I would say, and why would you say that? But getting people in terms of groups or two or three, because it isn't, it isn't the noun they use to describe it or the adjective, but you do, it's a bit of fun, it gets a smile on people's face, but that understanding, well, you know, I see this as like a dinosaur, but, but, but with a dog's tail because it's the wrong way round and it's got new bits. Some of that really starts getting into it. This is really interesting and can be a really sort of really good fun, um, a good fun icebreaker. Yeah, and I think that's an example of, of metaphorical thinking, which is something that's really good to build into qualitative research. 
Um, it's hard to do it in quantitative research, but when you've got that little bit more time, people are a bit more open to, to the sort of creative side of things, and you can do a bit more leading people, to, not leading in a bad sense, yeah, but, but yeah. helping people through it. Um, so in fact, you know, th there is quite good evidence that, that A, people are very good at thinking metaphorically, and, and B, that by thinking metaphorically, they open up um, new ways of, of describing their experience that you might not get to otherwise. Um, so the, in, in the book, How Customers Think, which I, I think I've mentioned before, and it's by, yeah. by Gerald Zeltman, he introduces, um, he, well, short story, well, short version of, of the book, he hates focus groups. Um, for, for a number of reasons, which I don't fully agree with, but, but he hates focus groups. What he proposes instead is something called the, the Zaltman Metaphor Elicitation Technique. That's going to catch on that snappy title. ZMET, which in a very short nutshell is, Greg, we want to do some qualitative research to understand how you see the world. Yeah. Can you collect some pictures out of magazines and stuff, bring them in, and then we'll talk about why you've chosen that to represent your feelings about your shampoo. Um, or whatever it might you be. You want me to do a collage? <laughs> sort of, yeah. Um, and it, the ZMAT technique is not quite the classic focus group thing of, of doing a collage, but it, it's kind of related. Um, and th the principle, really, of letting people sort of dwell on it and choose their image to bring in, yeah, I think is probably better than traditional collage, yeah. actually, but, but similar. The point about all of that is that by forcing people to, or by encouraging people to think metaphorically, you're opening up the way they can think about and describe their experiences, and that that is potentially quite a powerful thing to do. And you know that comparison, you know, if if so and so was an animal, what animal would they be? If they were a car, what car would they be? Whatever, um, you know, if they were a, a famous person, who would they yeah. be? These are all different ways to address how do you feel about. Yeah. X, Y, and Z. And as you say, you, you, you don't go, oh, so you know, you see Sainsbury's as being like Tom Hardy, that's interesting. Yeah. Um, you, you want to understand why that metaphor works. Yeah. So there's different ways of getting people to sort of articulate what's important to them. And then the skill of the researcher is we've got to take this list of 50 or 60 things down to 15, 20, perhaps 10. And that really then comes down, it, it's difficult to give a set rule of how to do that. You can get people to score it on one way, or you can see how often things come up front of mind, or I really think you know, if you've done 10 depth interviews yourself, or you've run four or five focus groups with 40 or 50 people, you have a very good sense as to what is coming out as important. Absolutely, and I think the key point there is that in qualitative work, you cannot separate field work and analysis so yeah. the person who's doing the field work should be the person who is making those decisions about what's on the questionnaire what's the right way to represent how customers feel about this well it's got to be the person who was there hearing it with the emotion intelligence mm. really how often should you repeat um, exploratory research it, it it's slightly hard to answer that i mean I, I, it does depend so much on it, do we think something's fundamentally changed in the way customers see the world? So we have a sort of rule of thumb of once every three to five years. Yeah. It, it, I think in, in some ways, it, probably be, it, it, it is a much more of a judgment call than that. It's more, has the world changed? So if you were talking about retail, you know, the world clearly changed at some point between 
I don't know the exact dates, but let, let's say between 2005 and 2012. Yeah. Mobile phones were big, you know, for example. A lot of things changed in that time. Yeah, smartphones is a good example. Anything where digital's made a really big impact, you know, if you developed a questionnaire in the year 2000 and you were trying to use it this year, it's going to look stupid, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. So I think, as you say, three years, five years, we would say. But there's definitely some clues you can get if you're doing ongoing research. You can see, we'll come to it later, sort of derived importance impact can sometimes flag up some things that are starting to change. And we advise clients... If you are getting a bit concerned, just ask customers during a main during the quantitative survey. Is there anything you think we've missed off this questionnaire? And if suddenly everyone's starting to talk about something, <laughs> perhaps you have missed it off the questionnaire. Mm. And perhaps well, you have missed off the questionnaire, but perhaps it's raising its way in terms of what's important. And you do sometimes see other topics starting to appear in some of the qualitative mm. questions within the quantitative um, survey. But fundamentally. Well, as you see movements up and down on satisfaction, what people want from their supplier tends to be fairly consistent and the hierarchy of it tends to be relatively consistent too. Yeah, I mean, we'll, I think, probably talk about this later, later in the book in later episodes, but I do think it's perhaps just fl- worth flagging up that tends to be, in terms of, you know, customer, what we call customer requirements. So... The things that, that are going to end up being on the questionnaire, the things that customers value in their relationship with a supplier. Some of those are, are what we call givens, so things like product quality and reliability and stuff like yeah. that that is very, very core business. The foundations upon which things are built. Exactly. Yeah. And, and some things are more likely to be differentiators. You know, Not everyone is doing these things well or at all. Um, and by being one of the first to introduce those things, you can get a sort of first mover advantage, you can be seen as being innovative and all those sorts of things. So what tends to happen is that customer requirements move. They migrate from being a differentiator to being a giver. Um, And that's something that you can see happening in surveys and and hopefully pick up signs of, you know, uh, Either there'll be an appetite for this thing if we start doing it, or, oh, hang on, our competitors have started doing that, and customers seem to, to like that. Um, so being aware of that sort of cycle of things become exciting and new, you know, m- most people are trying, but not everyone's really good at it. Everyone's got to be good at this, or they haven't yeah. got a chance. That migration is a good way yeah. to think about the world. And you do see it evolve over time, certainly working with one client who was doing something very new that everyone else was doing got a lot of brownie points for doing it, and then a few years later that's become a given because now that is the standard. Yeah. No brownie points for that. Used to be, but that's just standard now. Where's the next set of brownie points coming from? Think about you know web surveys in our world. You know, that's, a, that's a good example of something that, you know, when I first joined CLF, we were doing and not very many other people were. SurveyMonkey didn't exist at that point. Yeah. Bit by bit, you know, Proper research agencies were doing it, and there were perhaps other sort of technology companies starting to enter the market. And now it's very much a given. You're not getting any value for doing a, um, a <laughs> good value a web website. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Okay, so exploratory research, a fundamental to make sure that questionnaire is absolutely, you know, is absolutely right. So hopefully during this chapter we, we've explained. A, a little bit about making sure it's on the lens of the customer, 
different ways of um, approaching it and very much it's horses it's horses for for courses um, and all that will then get you in the position to have a questionnaire that's asking the right questions in the right way yeah that could be a catchphrase mm. um, so in the next chapter chapter six now we've got sort of the right questions we've got to make sure we ask them to the right people so one of the topics that often get asked about is sampling so we'll cover that in the next in the next podcast thanks very much for listening if you're using itunes please subscribe rate and review us and if you want to get in touch you can find us on twitter at tlf research or at tlfresearch.com and yet we'll be back next month with more ideas for turning your customer insight into impact and into action.